Hello, everybody, and welcome to our third episode of These Present Days, where we talk only about the news headlines that, as followers of Jesus, we got to pay attention to. Not because we are worried about them, but because we have a role to play in what is happening and what is coming. So, let's get into it. I need to have a drum roll. In this episode, we're going to speak about the Russian and Ukrainian um, back-and-forth conflict of wars and threats of wars and and the tense things between those two nations. Um, Of course, we all know by now, Ukraine Ukraine was part of Russia when Russia had its its, uh, largest uh, number of nations that it, it gathered through warfare and conquest. And so just... As we like it, the U.S. is positioning ourselves right smack in the middle of this. And so those who have decided to block the media from having a place in your daily routine, I just want to give a brief summary of what's happening in Europe right now. Russia wants Ukraine back. Simple as that. And they conquered uh, Crimea, the city that's in Ukraine, about a couple of years ago now, or maybe a few more than that. I'm not sure what the exact date was. But they got one of the major cities of Ukraine back, and that's it. I mean, it comes down to a real simple thing. They want the whole country of the Ukraine, and they all speak, you know, Russian. I mean, they're, they're a derivative of Russian language, and they have, you know, relatives on both sides in Russia um, and in Ukraine. And so... After World War II, the Soviet Union took over the entire country of Ukraine. Like I'm, I'm sure a lot of countries did. We, you know, conquering countries and doing that, you know, for a while too, turning it into a U.S. Uh, outpost, you know, where we have military bases still there, like in Germany. Um, it's actually, you know, just as simple as, as, as what we've been seeing going on in the history of the world part one that we probably got in high school or, or in college. Um, you see, in 1991, the Soviet Union was dissolved and Ukraine seized the independence from Soviet domination. They broke away. They wanted to, to be independent. They wanted to get away from them. This has never sat well with Russia. A fact that Russia has never been too thrilled about has the turn of events over the last 30-plus years where they've been grinding about it. And like I said, just a few years ago, two between two and three years, I think, that Russia took Crimea away from the Ukraine, and uh, everybody was up in arms about it, you know, but they didn't really you know, conquer a, a whole nation. And so it kind of like died out, but that was what they were trying to get, piece by piece. They're trying to get it back. Ukraine being its own independent country is a non-reality to the USSR. Their leadership doesn't acknowledge them. The mere existence of Ukraine separate as a country from them has been a slap in the face of Russians since they broke away and escaped. In 2014, Russia annexed or or removed the city of of Crimea, Crimea, 2014, I was a little bit off since we're seven years away from that. 
and I'm looking at the notes right now that I have, and it was 2014. And so that's when they officially declared by law a level state of war between the two countries, or a low level. And of course, the shooting down of the passenger airplane, I remember that back in the news in 2014, I guess is what it was now. It seems like uh, it was even you know sooner than that, but uh, that's what I have in the notes, and so I'm glad I got to this. And they, they shot down a passenger airplane, military style, and that's never been done before because they were warring with each other and tug-of-war was going on between the two countries and Russia wanted Crimea and Crimea, uh, who was comprised of Ukrainian people, wanted to stay with the Ukraine and so it was back and forth like a tug-of-war. And so they shot down a, a passenger plane with just regular citizens on it and everybody was up in arms, but nobody did anything about it. The United Nations never stepped in. It just passed. Probably some money changed hands. You know, probably some political favors were owed and all this kind of thing. So that's kind of like their history. You know, now here we are in 2022. Russia and Ukraine are back at tensions again. And they're at the highest level. Russia wants the territory back, and the U.S. is on Team Ukraine for some reason. And we really don't have any obligations to the Ukraine. We really don't have any responsibility for the Ukraine. We're, we're moving, as the U.S. has always done, as a peacemaker in the world. You know, we kind of butt into other people's business a little bit, like Vietnam and, and so forth. And even, you know, with that 22-year um, war in the Middle East that um, unceremoniously we pulled out of um, just, I think it was back in October, September and October, and we did it brutally, brutally. We left people in the country. We left them to be picked upon by all the different war warlords and, and groups that they have over there. So, does this fit biblical descriptions? Uh, like rumors of war and actual wars, check and check. Um, we're coming into those territories right now, Matthew 24, 6 through 8. And I'm going to read it to you from the complete English version translation, Matthew 24, 6 through 8. You will soon, you will soon hear about wars and threats of wars, but don't be afraid. These things will have to happen first, but that isn't the end. Nations and kingdoms will go to war against each other. People will starve to death, and in some places there will be earthquakes, but this is just the beginning of troubles, or in other translations, other translations say the beginning of birth pangs or contractions. In other words, there's something that's going to be born of all this. So, okay, why is this so important to us? Well, besides the obvious reasons, like human life being precious, Russia, having nuclear capabilities and the tendency and the tenderness, the tenderness, excuse me, of all of the almighty stock markets potentially plummeting, taking our 401ks with them, a much bigger purpose and reason is at hand for us Jesus freaks. The beginning of the end, but still just the beginning. This is a start. We are 22 years into an era, the 21st century, 
that reeks of the last days, from the unpredictable weather to the blatant perversions of once solid institutions and Western fundamentals, and every grotesque thing in between, following the signs, symbols, and signals that are beaming towards a latter-day season, not to mention the pandemic, we would be foolish not to desire, if nothing else, to understand what these present days truly are all about. From the mouth of Jesus himself, we find such an indisputable prophecy of what is going to happen. When the end begins in the 24th chapter of Matthew, obviously, this in this episode, we are focusing on the part that specifically speaks about wars and rumors of wars, kingdom, kingdoms warring with each other. And in particular, we want to highlight the fact that this isn't the first war or rumor of war that we have seen in our lifetimes, hardly. So what makes this particular situation unique? Russia and Ukraine have been going back and forth for a while now. So what makes this moment in time any different or significant than the times gone by or when things were pretty similar? Where we find the answer, where we find the answers to these questions is going to surprise a lot of us. It's in the figs. What? You might ask, it's in the figs? Are you kidding me? It's in a bowl of figs? Fig Newtons? What do you mean it's in the figs? Well, in the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew, again, verse 32, and we know starting in verse 3 on down, Jesus is talking about the end times and about deceivers deceiving many and deception is happening all over the place. In other words, liars are lying everywhere. And if possible, that you can even deceive the elect. And what makes that possible is when the elect, the body of Christ, the followers of God, when the elect are ignorant of what the truth really is. If they don't know the truth, they have nothing to hold up against the lies or the deception. Verse 32. In the middle of him speaking about the end times and what to look for and what to look out for, he interrupts his own flow and takes his disciples back to the parable of the fig tree for those of us who need a brief refreshing course, uh, we're going to go back there ourselves to Matthew 21. This is not a parable, it's a story. You know, but a parable is a story, but it's like an allegory. It's a make-believe thing. This is a true story in Matthew 21, 18 through 22. And it says in verse 18, early the next morning, Jesus was going back to the city and he was very hungry. Verse 19, he saw a fig tree beside the road. Jesus went to it, but there were no figs on the tree. There were only leaves. So Jesus said to the tree, you'll never again have fruit. The tree immediately dried up. Verse 20, his followers saw this and were amazed. They asked, how did this fig tree dry up so quickly? Verse 21, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, you will be able to do what I did to this tree. And you'll be able to do more. You'll be able to say to this mountain, go mountain, fall into the sea. And if you have faith, it'll happen. If you believe, verse 22 says, if you believe, you'll get anything you ask for in prayer. And so the figs are really representing something. They're a symbol of something. And so Jesus walked up to a fig tree. And because it was unnatural for a fig tree in that season not to bear figs, in other words, there's something off here. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to blow your mind a little bit. 
I'm going to tell you this. The parable and the story, the actual story, both of them, the parable shows up in Matthew 24, and we read that just a moment ago. And we, we read, you know, elsewhere in the Bible to where when, when winds start to blow and storms start to, you know, shake the trees and the figs fall to the ground prematurely and they're lost and they're wasted. The, the fig tree has a lot of symbolic usage in the Bible. Now, the fig tree, let me give you some possibility of, of what it could possibly be. Okay, um, because like I said, it's not producing figs and Jesus is hungry and so he curses it, but he's doing it as, he's doing it as an object lesson. And his disciples were scratching their heads and go, why is he so mad at the tree? Why did he take it out of the tree? And the tree died and withered at the root. It would be better to pluck it up or to cause it to stop growing because it was an aberration. In other words, it was something that it wasn't created to be. It had become something perverted, become something mutated. It become something that was foul to God because it's not acting the way that God intended. We know there's a lot of different things like that. And so the fig tree represents a human. Hmm, really? Well, then what are figs? Figs are the byproduct of that human. Okay, what byproduct are you looking for? Well, it's impossible to please God without F-A-I-T-H. And it seems like Jesus was not pleased to see that there was no figs or there's no F-A-I-T-H. Because when people aren't living by faith, you know, they have it on and off, here a little, there a little, tit for tat, this for that, and they're not solid in living by faith. Anytime that God comes rolling up on us, which is often because he cares about us and wants to fellowship with us, and he sees that there's no figs under your leaves, and it bothers him. There's a story that Jesus told one time about this guy that had an orchard and he had a fig tree that wasn't producing figs. And the master said, cut it down, get it out of the ground. It encumbers the ground. It takes up space here that something productive could be planted. And the gardener begged the master and said, please, master, um, let me... Let me dig around it. Let me dung it, you know, put fertilizer and give me some time with it and try to get it back to where it's producing fruit. And if not, Jesus said, after that time I give you, I'm going to cut it down. Well, you see, Jesus is looking at our lives because we're planting. Bible calls us trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. And a fig tree is a very symbolic tree. You know, it's like, just like the olive tree, it's a symbolic of an anointing uh, manufacturer because olive oil is used in the anointing oils. A fig you know, tree, the, the, the Mediterranean areas that it was growing in, they, they, they depended on that. They depended on it producing what it's supposed to produce. They loved that. It gave them joy. They would even make beverages from the figs, even make wine from figs as well as grapes. So... And I'm, I'm, knowing, I'm saying something that's kind of blowing your mind. I'm saying something far-fetched right now, but look at it this, this way. The parable of the fig tree or the story about the fig tree that we have in Matthew, we also have in Mark 11, is about faith. It's about a faith that doesn't even have to 
a minuscule or a sliver of doubt, a faith that knows what it knows and no one can talk us out of it. In other words, a faith that is so certain that it hasn't been tampered with, watered down, deformed, you know, by the philosophy of men or by the bad experiences of people. Remember one time when Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, excuse me, I stepped all over my tongue trying to talk right there. <laughs> and he came back down and he found this man that the disciples tried to pray for him and, or for his son, you know, on his behalf. And they failed. They couldn't, they couldn't cast the devil out of the boy. And the father comes up there and says, Master, your, your, your disciples, your followers, they tried to pray for my son and they couldn't help him. You know, please, can you help me? And Jesus said, well, if you have faith. And the man said, I have faith. Help my unbelief. What was he talking about? He's talking about not unbelief to where he doubts God. He just doubts that God's able. No. Everybody that believes in God knows that if God really does exist, that he can do anything. But this is talking about a doubt based upon negative experience. Something went wrong. It didn't turn out right. And it's stuck in his craw. And so he's trying to get around that, but he keeps tripping over it. And so he says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And then Jesus said, you know, that if you have faith, you know, if you have faith, your son just needs you to have faith. But this man came back, well, I have faith, but I have something choking it off. I have something that's stifling it. And Jesus didn't waste any time. Immediately, the devil threw the kid to the ground. He started wallowing and swallowing his tongue and stuff like this. And Jesus said, how long has he been doing this since the childhood? He said, and the devil throws him in the fire and throws him in the water. And so Jesus just said, go, come out of him and go. He just took care of it. He just overrode the man's unbelief. And this is not the obstinate, the, the disobedient, you know, the shake your fist in God's face unbelief. This is the unbelief that comes about by experiences. Why do I know that? It's the same word as used elsewhere, but the context determines the content of this word and the definition of it, how it's used. Because this is used in the context of a man that just saw something terrible. His son went from bad to worse right in front of the disciples, and they backpedaled and excused themselves and left the kid and didn't try again. And the guy was desperate to have Jesus help him. And we know this because if the devil is brazen enough to throw this kid down on the ground and to convulse him when Jesus was actually there, he had gotten really too cocky. And so that is what Jesus is really upset about, is the devil knows better than that. You put that kid up in my face, you know, uh, how dare he do that? Because he got away with it with the disciples. Because if he would do it to Jesus, you know he would do it to anybody less than Jesus, which his disciples are. And so the, the guy is valuable enough for Jesus to work with him and meet him where he's at and take care of overriding his unbelief and get the job done for the sake of his son. So, this is a faith that knows what it knows and no one can talk us out of it. And it's gotta, it, it takes time to get it rock solid like that. You see, you could even try it. It's too late. It's like trying to convince someone that air doesn't keep us alive when we've been breathing our entire lives. We've, it's too late for us to be talked out of, out of whether there's air or not.
<laughs> and so we've even held our breath at times growing up as kids in the water and just, you know, trying to count, you know, to 60, to um, maybe 180, you know, to see if you could do it for three minutes. And then you start gasping. We know we need air. We know air exists and it's important. And faith is just that important to our spiritual man and to our complete makeup. So <laughs> we need air to live. We are just that certain. This is the type of faith that the fig tree parable and experience is referring to. The fig tree wasn't doing what it was created to do, like I said earlier. Jesus cursed it, and immediately that fig tree withered. They saw it all right there in Matthew's account in, verse, in chapter 21. In Mark's account, it says on the next day they saw the tree was dead and withered. And so that was his experience. Matthew was standing right there, and he saw it a different way. And so you find people giving different perspective, even though it's anointed and it's true. It was their moment of truism. You know, it's their perspective, in other words, but it was anointed. But it also gives us two perspectives. And sometimes things take time because um, in the one where it grew, I mean, where it, it didn't, it didn't uh, die immediately. It died immediately under the ground, and it took time for it to be seen, so it took a day. Because under the ground is under the surface or is out of sight, just like the spirit world is. And so when Jesus spoke words that are spirit and their truth to the fig tree to die, no one's going to eat any fruit from you anymore, and it died spiritually, and it eventually showed the effect of it physically the next day. But it can, be, it can be the same time frame, just like Matthew said. So it's, it's not one or the other, or who's right and who's wrong. Nobody's wrong. They're both right. And so, because faith to us is as, a, is as figs were to the fig tree. Figs perpetrate life, just like faith perpetrates life. Let me say that again. Figs perpetrate life. In other words, I mean, not perpetrate, perpetuate. Figs perpetuate. They're, you know, you're, you're, you're the perpetrator when you speak it out of your mouth or you act on it as an action of belief in God and you step out and do something. And so we perpetuate, you know, we perpetrate it first. We start it, but then we perpetuate it by continuing to persist you say the bunch of peas like that, pack of pickled peppers, the figs, they, they perpetuate as we perpetually lock in and don't move away from the faith that we have in God and in Jesus to perform that which he promises if we say anything in his name that he's going to do it. And so figs perpetuate life just like faith perpetuates life. And just like faith perpetuates life, faith has got to be per perpetrated first before it can be perpetuated. Perpetrated is where we start it. we got to start it. I mean, it actually starts years and years and millennials ago. It started in the heart of a father who created all things in creation. And it's been set in motion by him saying things because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And so we're stepping into it, but we are perpetuating 
and perpetrating it into our own life where it might be dormant. It may be nothing happening right then. And all of a sudden we perpetrate it and then we perpetuate it. Perpetrating it means that you jump in and throw a monkey wrench into what the lies of this fallen world are saying through the anomaly of a tree that bears fruit not bearing fruit. That's a wrong thing. And so that is why Jesus cursed it. And also another symbol that the fig tree represents is Jesus is doing this in front of Jewish religious leaders and Jewish religious leaders and political leaders, you know, that anything that they were doing in their nation, you know, concerning him when he came in contact with them is that the nation of Israel wasn't producing fruit unto God by their faith walk or faith lifestyle because they became religious. And it was legalism and legalistic the way that they uh, perpetuated their religious beliefs. And so when he cursed the fig tree, in essence, he's telling them, you're doing a cursed thing by practicing a religion when God wanted a relationship, when God didn't want you to fossilize in something rigid and and get legalistic about it and bludgeon people with it. God wanted you to bring life. And so the figs, just like faith to us is as figs were to the fig tree. I mean, fig trees produce figs. Christians produce faith because they take in and ingest God's word and that God's word, that faith that they ingest feeds them. Just like Figs feed people when they eat them. And so faith to us is as figs were to that tree. And not only are they, they, they benefit us and they give us sustenance, they also represent the future because the fig has the seed that reproduces the tree and the life of the tree uh, goes and dies in the ground and comes up in its root system going down and its, and its trunk and its branches going upward, and that's the perpetuation of it because it changes things. So figs perpetrate life just like, or perpetuate life just like faith. See, we're created to live by faith. Faith is required for us to live according to God's ways alone. And now that we got those memory juices flowing about the fig tree, let's jump back to Matthew 24 for a minute. In Matthew 24, 32, Jesus has another little trip to take us on. And so he's going to compare the process of a fig tree coming into production as a sign of the season that is about to come. You see, the summer season in particular as being a parallel to his return. Now remember that the possessor of a fig tree has understood in the planting, nurturing, and growing of the fig tree that the fig tree has a process, a process of seasons, of where he produces fruits and where he holds back and holds off and regathers nutrients. And so in the 21st chapter, you know, we read about the parable of the fig tree, and we also see a little bit of that mentioned in uh, chapter 24, you know, to where... Uh, he's talking about a fig tree is going to be 
symbolic or emblematic of the season that we're living in when he returns. And so he's talking about faith. And back in, the, in Luke's gospel, it says specifically about the end times, when Jesus returns, will he find faith on the earth? That's a question. And you would think back in the heyday of Christianity, when the early church started and everybody was excited and everybody was seeing signs, wonders, and miracles, that well, that's a dumb question. Why would you ask that? Well, of course there's to be faith. Ah, uh, you thought that mankind would just keep growing closer and closer and Christianity or following Jesus would be increasing exponentially. God's kingdom, you know, seeing no end pretty soon by the time Jesus comes back for his people. <laughs> um, everything is evangelized. Every person that could be possibly saved on the earth has been saved. And so, you know, that's the job that it's, we're supposed to be a part of. But that's not the case. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the time of the return of the Son of Man. And it must have been bad in the days of Noah, horrible in the days of Noah. I mean, bestiality, incest with children, you know, molestation and pedophilia. I mean, seriously, they have had those kind of seasons throughout the Bible. Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, with same-sex this and same-sex that. We know these things. And it says it's going to be the same. You see, how awful was it? I mean, we've seen the movies, but the movies do nothing for it. If they really wanted to make a, a movie about what actually happened uh, leading up to Noah's Ark, um, it would be a pornographic movie. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you couldn't show it to, you know, polite society at all. You couldn't because it was horrible. And that's what provoked God to destroy because it was too far gone to bring them back from the edge. And so that's the times that we're living in. And so for him to ask, when the Son of Man returns, will, there, will he find faith on the earth? I don't know, will he? Hopefully he will. I think he will. I believe there's a lot of us who are born for such a time as this, and we're still here, and we're going to be here until Jesus comes back. And so, yeah, I'll say yeah. You know, and I re the reason he's asking the question is because there's a real possibility that being the direction that Christianity and other religious uh, practices have taken in the last few years, you could actually think that there might be an end to it in sight because that's how bad it's gotten so far. And believe me, it's going to get worse. Mm. So, the summer season in particular is the season of the fig's greatest um, uh, productivity. You know, the harvest. That's the harvest time. It gets fattened up on the spring rains, you know, and the tree is getting more nourishment and, and all through the summer, you know, when they get any water source to them. They have root systems that go down deep into artesian wells and they're, and they're drinking in the water and it's got to have, you know, juiciness. And without the water in its life, without the water, it would be dry and it wouldn't be, it'd be unedible. It'd just be dry and nasty on the inside of it. And water is always a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is working together with God's Word to get all things ready for His return. And so the process of a fig tree, as we read in chapter 21, for 21, is talking about faith, the bottom line of the point, Jesus is making 
a reference that when the people of God start acting as he did to the fig tree and cursing it, when it wasn't living as it was created, in other words, by faith, and he means all of his people living this way, regardless of the world around us, this is our indicator that the time of his return is close. I'm going to say that all again. You see, he did to the fig tree in cursing it. And when he did this, it wasn't uh, just for the fig tree, just for his disciples right then, but it's echoing all the way down through history that he's demonstrating something because he said elsewhere about this same example of a fig tree that the fig tree has seasons. And when the fig tree sprouts its leaves in the 21st chapter of the book of Luke, he said that you start looking for his return. It's getting close. And so the people of God need to start acting as he did to the fig tree and cursing it when it wasn't living as it was created. In other words, curse anything that has affected you producing faith, you living by faith, you having the fruit of faith in your life. And so he means all of his people, not just the preachers, not just the evangelists, all of the people. Because if you're in God's word, if you know God's word to any degree, if you have a working knowledge, just a simplistic one, and you have a relationship with Jesus, a wonderful, simple one, doesn't have to be elaborate. And you trust him for everything in life. You consult him about everything in life. I mean, I don't, I don't mean about what clothes to wear, what foods to eat. I mean, in some certain extreme situations, you might want to use that because you could be eating something toxic in some countries that don't have the AMA stamp of approval on it or the FDA stamp of approval on it. You know, the, M, the AMA you know, just the medical community condemning certain things that you ingest and put into your body. And so what this comes down to is that what does any of this have to do with Russia and the Ukraine? I'm so happy you asked that. The significance of the rumors of war and or intentions of war and real war that are continually hidden don't really have any teeth to them. For us, the lesson by the way, it's just like when Jesus spoke of the awful things to come in the end times. The lesson is something we should have been pretend, perfecting, excuse me, not pretending, perfecting long ago. Walking by faith and not by sight or sound or touch or smell. Faith is our stability in times of uncertainty and instability all around us. Faith is what grounds us firmly and confidently in the truth. And that's speaking, of course, of the Word of God. That's truth. Wars, evil to come, worst times than we've ever been through, famines, and all that craziness is coming in just a withering, a withering fake tree that we have the authority to call unfruitful and, to, and a non-threat because God declares us as more than conquerors. You see, even the beautiful people of the Ukraine and Russia who are following Jesus and choosing to live by this insane faith are the exceptions to the rules of war. 
They are in a position of confidence in the miraculous, in a God who covers them and hides them and fights for them, whether or not a warring actually breaks out. The time we are now in is just the beginning. So how are we going to know to react to the, how are we going to know to how to react to the devastation and the news reports that are so negative that will be popping up more and more? If I were us, I would make sure that above all else, my faith working by love is the priority and the thing that I lean upon during the days now and just ahead. And so I hope it wasn't a little too um, esoteric or too symbolic for you with the faith representing, you know, the figs and so forth. But you got to look at it like this. Anything that attacks our reproducing of God. You see, when we choose to follow, that means we choose to mimic. That means we choose to imitate. That means we choose to act like God. That means we choose to live by faith. You don't think God lives by faith? Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 that by faith the, the, the heavens and the earth and the constellations were created. By faith they were created when God spoke. So when he spoke, he spoke words of faith. And as he spoke words of faith and created and then it got corrupted by the fall of mankind, we have every right to speak like he did to the fig tree to die because it doesn't serve a purpose. Well, if your faith, your real biblical faith turns into more experiential or more um, experimental, it's not going to be a God-honoring thing at all. In fact, it's going to be a God-questioning thing. And in the middle of all that, God isn't well-pleased because it's impossible to please God without faith. You see, the faith that he's looking for, that he's looking to see if he comes back and says, will God find this faith on the earth? I believe so. And it is a faith that is impervious and, and, and sees everything that is contrary to God's truth as lies and not giving one scintilla of a moment of time to, because we can't afford to have our faith dwindle and shrivel down like a fig tree that's dying even on the branches. It's dying because it's not producing anything. It's dying because the person that has it isn't engaging it in anything that is productive. They have a generic faith that we're Christians, and by faith, you know, we should go to the church even though it's in a warehouse, we should go to the church and we should actually um, engage our, ourselves in a service to the church. And, well, how much is that going to cost me? What's that going to take? And we can't afford to look at it like that because your faith is going to be tested in all kinds of different ways. But what we need to understand is you can't put a price tag on faith. We know that God gives, and he gives it free to who's, those who seek it. And we understand that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so we understand that in the, in, in, in the moments that we're living in right now, to be well-pleasing to God, 
to fight off fear and unbelief, we have got to determine that I'm going to be that tree of righteousness that God says I am. I'm a planting of the Lord. He planted me on this earth in the time frame that I was born and I'm living. And I'm here for a reason. Because, you see, people can live off of that faith. People can gather under the shade of that faith when they're scared spitless in the middle of their regular life and they are being scorched by the blazing heat of all the different threatening things on the earth. And they find a person like you that is indomitable and stubborn as a rock when it comes to trusting in their God and believing in their God and what he has said that he would do to take care of us in these times. They need that. They're gravitating toward that. They're running to that. And only persons that would be against that would be demonically inspired people that are trying to undercut anything that God's kingdom is about, anything that God is doing in the earth right now. And we are something that God is doing in the earth right now. We are the offspring of God. And we are coming into our day and into our challenge and into our moments of life at its finest to where we get to prove out the truth of God's word. And as we do, lives will be saved. I'm not just talking about salvation, though. Lives will be fed. Lives will be clothed. Lives will be sheltered. Lives will be freed. Lives will be respected. Lives will be delivered from prejudices and and uh, all kinds of, of secular uh, byproducts of a fallen world that we've that we've uh, got caught up in, because you could be a person that's just a nice person and has a family and, and loves their family and got their kids in sports, and, and uh, you're thinking that you're doing so many things with your family that, that's so good, and yet if it's not spiritually based, if, it, if it's not mixed in with spiritual activities too, because we're spirit, soul, and body, 33, 33, and 33 to make 100%. Um, or 99, but you, you know, have to go point, you know, 99999. So we are best serving God and mankind when we're not passing out a bunch of stuff that talks about God and mailing it in or not just staying at a distance with a megaphone and yelling and shouting at people to get saved or turn or burn or read the book or cook. You know, stuff like this. The days of those kind of evangelistic methods is over. What we need to be about is, you see the way that I'm living? You see my faith and my trust in God? You see that God has made me unflappable? You see that God has made me immovable like himself? You see all of that and you can be the same? Well then, do as I do. Follow me as I follow Jesus. And I'll try to lead the best I can. But follow me as I'm following Jesus. You're not going to get a single thing from me. But if I get out of the way often enough, you're going to get a lot from Jesus. And so, Father, I thank you for helping all of us recognize that we were born for such a time as this. We don't have to strategize it. You know, the great big blueprint on a big old drafting table, you know, and all these little details and all these little engineering specs and everything else on it. Nope. We're going to keep it simple. All we've got to do is live our life as Jesus because we 
were dead on the cross, dead in the tomb, alive in the resurrection with him, and he's given us his life, hereby we live. And so since we've already died, and we've already passed through judgment, because Jesus was judged for us, and found guilty, and paid our price, and was raised from the dead, how much more do we owe God our life back by living for him? By faith. Love you all. Thank you for taking the time to listen in. I'll talk to you until next time. Be good.